0: From WBEZ Chicago and the desires that move you, this is Pleasure Town. Around the turn of the last century, a group of folk built their dream, a town where happiness was the main objective. But, as history has shown, the sun sets on us all. So, breathe deep and join us as we pray for the dead of Pleasure Town. Of all the things I regret about Pleasure Town, and I assure you, there are many.
1: You know, Si, sometimes I think all you do is regret.
0: Yes, Claude, when one has been as ineffective as I was.
2: Um, I don't mean to encroach, but I believe I might be the best person to...
0: Who the hell are you?
1: Oh,
2: Ida. I- Ida Loose.
0: I don't recall meeting an Ida
1: Loose.
2: That doesn't surprise me. Given the states you two were in when I met you.
1: Now, wait just a minute.
2: I assure you, I'll hand the reins back, but I believe I should tell this one.
0: Well, what do you say, Claude? Mm. We were kind of out of our wits at the time.
1: Sure. Fine. Give me more time to think about drinking.
2: 4th, 1889. Philadelphia Evening Post. Carl Thomas scores his first feature article. He'd spent two weeks among the Harmony Society, a self-described model community in western Pennsylvania. This article was one of three that covered that experience. The articles were an instant hit. By the time the third appeared, the Post had to print seven times as many papers. Soon after, Thomas was hired by the New York Gazette. His beat? The Utopia. Any group, large or small, dedicated to perfecting life. He'd talk his way in, live among them, and wire back his experiences. And each series was just as popular, if not more, than the last. June 5th, 1892. Just three years after the first feature, Thomas writes his last article for the Gazette. He was reporting on Pleasure Town, a relatively new society in the Oklahoma Territory. After looking behind the veil of more than 20 utopian societies, Thomas shocked his readers, not to mention his employer, and resigned, choosing to join the society rather than report on it. I was one of those readers, perhaps his most devoted fan. I read his articles with such fervor that most of them were practically memorized. So... His resignation was more than just a shock to me. It was shattering. I say all that just so you know how important the following conversation is to me. Can you state your name?
3: Going formal, huh? Just do it. My name is Carl L. Thomas.
2: And your occupation?
3: Well, I was a reporter.
2: And why did you quit?
3: Funny thing is, even now, I still don't know...
2: Most people never get the chance to sit down with their idol, to pick their brain, to ask all the questions that you've compiled over a hundred sleepless nights, and I'd wager even fewer people get to ask those questions after their idol
4: dies.
3: You'd think that death would bring some sort of clarity to your life, but at least for me, the hows and the whys just got more complicated. Death isn't looking back. It's more like standing outside. The anchor of time is gone. Yep,
2: there is no yesterday.
3: All the days are yesterday.
2: And today is nothing but a dream. You should write that down. To be clear, we're both dead, Carl and I, as well as most everyone else who ever lived in Pleasure Town. This begs the question of how our voices reach the living. But solving that riddle won't really serve this story. What is important is how I found Thomas, a search that started in life took several unexpected turns and ended when I finally crossed over into the afterlife Our deaths are a frequent topic of conversation between the two of us Mine was at an old age in a hospital far from Pleasure Town His, well we'll get to that soon enough Also, he and I have decided to tell this story from my perspective as the mystery and discovery paint a far clearer picture than the unfiltered truth Thomas puts it like this
3: You never want to read the last paragraph of an article first, nor would you want to start with the last act of a play. A story is a journey, and the writer is your guide.
2: So today's story is my story, which plays out nicely in four acts. Act 1, The Man Behind the Curtain. Act 2, The Long Arm of the Law. Act 3, Not My Brother's Keeper. Act 4, The Lies That Bind. Stay with us. Act One, The Man Behind the Curtain. It took me nearly 20 years to finally decide to head to Pleasure Town, and most of a month to travel to it. But as soon as I arrived, I asked where I could find Carl. The answer I got didn't register. An old man with only three teeth pointed to a clearing west of town, in which was a graveyard. Out there with the rest
5: of them that died in the fire. Are you family?
2: I didn't answer. I couldn't answer. So the old man shuffled off and left me in my grief. The regret of waiting hit me hard. But at the same time, I knew I couldn't let this trip be a waste. I had failed to meet Carl in life, so the next best option, the only other option, was to tell the story of his death. I'd never written an article before, but I'd studied enough of his to where I had a pretty good idea of how it was done. One thing I knew for sure was I had to speak with one of Pleasure Town's two founders, Cyrus or Claude. Not only were they the leadership, They were also featured in Carl's final article The End for Him, The Beginning for Me. Of the two founders, only one seemed to have a known location. Claudius, the more brash and boozy of the two, was now the town's mayor, and, according to a middle aged woman, spent his days in City Hall. City Hall was a frenzy of action. Five employees ran back and forth with papers, trading short conversations, rushing out the front door and returning just as quickly. One seemed to be in charge. He couldn't have been that much older than me. But on his desk was a nameplate with the title, City Clerk. A large map of Pleasure Town, tacked to the east wall with nearly a fourth of the town, was circled in red. And at the back of the room stood a closed, ornate door. I waited for 30 minutes, first not wanting to disturb important work, but then just to see if anyone would notice me. They didn't. So I finally spoke up and asked if I could speak with Claudius. The clerk, not looking up from his desk, replied, And you are? Ida Luce. Doesn't ring a bell. Did you
4: have an appointment?
2: At this, one of the other employees, a waif of a girl with thin black hair, let out a quick laugh. The laugh, along with Carl's depiction of Claude, a heavy drinker even by Pleasure Town standards, keyed me in to the fact that Claude was not the type of man that set appointments. I shifted tactics and said I was new in town. The young man briefly paused in his work, stood straight,
4: and for the first and last time, looked me in the eye. Ah, well, on behalf of Mayor Claudius, welcome. We only got two rules. Pleasure, but not at the expense of your neighbor. Ecstasy, but not at the expense of the town. I'm afraid we don't offer much other than pleasure, or the illusion of pleasure, if you believe the shanty folk. Bars down the street to the left, brothels across town, I'd avoid the tents if I were you. Have a good day. And with that, he turned his attention back to his papers. I had little
2: hope of success, but if I knew anything about reporting a story, it was that you never take the first no, or the second, or the third for that matter. So I threw down the gauntlet. I told them I wasn't leaving until I spoke with
4: Claudius. That didn't work either. Then you might never leave. Since the fire, Claude has been busy. There's an endless amount of work to be done. Rebuilding this town is his first and only priority. You're not going to see him. Trust me, it is not going to happen. I was getting nowhere with the
2: clerk. And at the time, I believed that Claude was key to my investigation. Without warning, I rushed up to the ornate door and flung it open. Claude's desk was as cluttered as his staff's. But instead of stacks of papers, Claude had half to mostly empty bottles of whiskey. Claude himself lay flat against the left wall, naked and snoring. I expected to be yanked out of the room. But instead, the clerk held my arm, led me out, and gently closed the door.
4: People can't know. With Cyrus all but gone, they have to believe someone's looking out for them. If everyone finds out that Claude's like that, this town will disappear. It'll be empty by morning. I wish I could trust you, but I don't know you, and I can barely trust those I do know, so you have to leave. I've called the sheriff. He'll show you the way out of town. I'm sorry, but this is probably the best thing that could have happened to you here. When I walked
2: outside, the sheriff was waiting for me. I had traveled too far just to be turned away after only one failed interview. So I pled my case, detailing the intent of my visit. The sheriff eyed me up and down, then motioned for me to get on the wagon. Act Two. long arm of the law. Turns out, I wasn't the only one working to unravel the mystery of Carl's death. Pleasure Town's lawman, Sheriff Deuteronomy, was on the case. After I was forced upon him by the town clerk, we immediately bonded over our shared pursuit. He then graciously offered to give me a tour of the town.
6: You see all this charred and twisted refuse? Well, that's what's left of the old schoolhouse. That's where the fire started, at least, that's what I believe, to the best of my judgment.
2: Sheriff Deuteronomy and I are riding through the remains of the town's western quarter. Even though it's been weeks since a massive fire ripped through Pleasure Town, most of the destruction remains untouched an eerie, ghost town in the middle of what is still a thriving community.
6: My old boy Ezekiel, that little scoundrel, thinks it could have started in the supply shed out back. But what does that dumb dog know anyhow?
2: I'm sorry, Ezekiel?
6: Oh, my old hound. He ain't with us no more. Damn shame. But he's here in spirit. See?
2: The sheriff opens his mouth like a wide-mouthed bass to reveal a set of large, pointed canines wedged cleanly onto his own.
6: Ezekiel's teeth fitted his fangs myself so we'd never be apart. What can I say? I love that mutt. And I'm pretty handy with a knife.
2: Deuteronomy serves as Pleasure Town's first and only sheriff, a role he has been filling for around 20 years. You don't spend that kind of time keeping order in a town full of hedonists without a few good stories. So I asked him if anything surprises him anymore.
6: The resilience of the human spirit... That's a surprise. There's just some people out there that no matter how hard you try to break their will, they seem to always fight back. Insolence. That's what it is. And it's my job to see to it that everyone respects the rule of law here. Everyone.
2: But what kind of laws are there in a town whose credo is to be a playground for pleasure?
6: I ain't talking about man's laws. Man's laws are inferior to those of God. And I take it upon myself to enact God's punishment.
2: Isn't that presumptuous of you? I mean, how can a man pretend to know God's
4: will?
6: Ezekiel says you ask too many questions.
2: Sheriff Deuteronomy and I continued to ride through the rubble. As we did, he began to open up, talking freely about his thoughts and theories on all the recent calamities that had rocked Pleasure Town, including the death of Carl Thomas.
6: I admit I never much cared for that reporter, but then again, I'm not one to trust a Yankee, no offense to you, heck. I'm not one to trust much of anybody, particularly a man or a woman who doesn't seem to have much of any convictions, particularly when it comes to romance. What do
2: you mean, romance? You didn't hear?
6: That reporter and the doctor were all chummy. Real chummy. And while we might be in anything-goes kind of town, that kind of thing just doesn't sit well, you know? It just ain't right. A man and another man enjoying a meal, a glass of wine, companionship.
2: This is the first I've heard of this.
6: Nobody ever caught them doing nothing. But I just got a feeling about those two. An itch.
2: The more I talked to the sheriff, the more I realized I was talking to a man who seemed split in two. Currie is talking about God and morality, yet he's the arbiter of the most notoriously sinful settlement in the country.
6: Truth is, I think that's who did it. The doctor. Just can't convict him, not yet. Need that hard evidence. Need the red hand to seal the deal.
2: Was there any evidence at all?
6: Just the body. Or what was left of it, which... Wasn't much, but some black bone looked like someone done burned a barbecue. Oh, and a totem, an effigy of some woman. Didn't recognize her, but Ezekiel, old boy. He says she looks familiar.
2: We started heading east back into the heart of town. On our way, peppered among the burned out buildings were scavengers, residents, and vagabonds who sift through the wreckage, searching for valuables and salvaging memories. Shanta folk. After the fire, those who were displaced pulled together what scraps they could and erected a village within a village. A community made of rusted tin cans and empty milk bottles. One man in particular seems to attract the sheriff's attention.
6: Tom! Native Tom! Didn't I tell you that if I saw your sorry red ass picking through this garbage again, I'd have your hide stretched above my mantle?
2: Tom is an elderly man. One of the Cheyenne. His skin is grooved as if pressed by the hardships that time so unfairly dealt. He looks up at the sheriff. His eyes sorrowful with only a specter of pride remaining. In his hands are a couple
4: of nails. Sheriff, I'm not doing anything that these other folks aren't doing. Just sifting through this pile of burnt this and that. Just looking for some nails and things. That's all. Dumb.
6: I'd ask you to pray with me, but you and I both know you ain't a praying type, so why don't you do one of those little dances of your people and maybe the big magic wind will blow a house right down on you.
4: I lost my home. Everything.
6: Please. Now you got that itch starting in me, boy. I don't much care for your kind in the first place, with all your paganism and witchcraft. At least these other leeches bow their head before God, but you, you just can't take a hint. The good Lord wants you to suffer, and Ezekiel and I will see that you do.
2: I... I don't really think this is necessary.
6: Why don't you just stick to the reporting, ma'am, and I'll stick to the enforcement. Stop.
2: Shaman John, who I knew from Carl's writing to be a former Mormon missionary turned mystic, intervenes.
6: Well, if it ain't
3: Joseph Smith Jr. This man has done nothing wrong. He is just trying to piece together what little he can find to make a living. Just like so many others. But he's Indian blood. And what of it? We have many Indian residents. And a couple Jews, some Buddhists, and Muslims, and a Hindu.
6: I liked you better when you were missing. You discover something shaming? Or did you just learn that all life is wandering and finding and dealing and moving on?
3: Life may move on, good sheriff but we shall never turn our backs on others. Now here you go, Tom. Here's a couple of nails. I'll be around later to help you fix your roof. Thank you, Shaman.
6: Thank you. You messing with the wrong man, boy, and God is watching.
2: Shaman John turns his back on the sheriff and walks off to follow after Tom. The other pickers continue to hover quietly over the scraps of wood and metal. Towering as the sheriff mounts his wagon.
6: I'm all to finish my patrol, but if I were you, I'd stay away from that shantytown. Nothing there but the manure on the heel of society's boot.
2: While I appreciated the sheriff's advice, I couldn't help but to feel it was delivered as a threat. And it was obvious this was a man whose threats are far from empty. three, not my brother's keeper. Despite the sheriff's admonition, I had to get the full story of the fire that took Carl's life. And so I headed to the shantytown to talk to those who lived through it.
5: Right here, right where we are standing. This is where I last saw him.
2: Those in the shantytown lost more than their homes. Such is the case of Elijah, the town barber, whose shop and beloved brother were consumed by the fire. Elijah has risen to become the de facto leader of Pleasure Town's shanty community. I interviewed Elijah at the site of the old shop, now a pile of cinder and dirt. He had erected a crude cross made with spare twine and discarded wood to serve as a makeshift memorial for his lost sibling.
5: Brother heard the fire first. That's how he was, you know. Ears like a bat. A housefly could land across the room and brother would be rolling up a newspaper before you even knew it was there. We both ran outside and saw the schoolhouse, ablaze with the ferocity of a hundred suns. It was only a couple of doors down from here, so we could feel the heat. It was eating everything up. Everything. Just swallowing all that stood in its path, and unfortunately, we were square in the middle of its way.
2: Didn't you both think to run?
5: You bet I did. I told brother to make like lightning, but it was the strangest thing. He ran back into the shop. For what I can't say, How huh, to figure what a blind man would be looking for. And so I watched as fire licked our walls and breathed smoke into our shop. I could hear brother coughing, choking, I wanted to run back in and pull them out, but the others stopped me, said I'd be a damned fool. And they were right. There was no chance anyone was going to make it out alive.
2: As the first black residents of Pleasure Town, Elijah and his brother, Jebediah, were well known. Their barbershop was one of the most successful businesses in the community, having stood for more than two decades. But it only took a matter of minutes to reduce it to ash.
5: You know, we never found the body. Probably just burned up. Guess it's fitting. The shop was his life, and now, in death, they are together. Their remains indistinguishable.
2: Elijah bends down, picks up a handful of dirt, and kisses his fist before reciting a prayer under his breath. He then returns the dirt to the site and stands back up, his eyes wet with the tears of remembrance.
5: I keep going. Built myself a little shack, just like the rest who lost what they worked so hard for. And now I watch over them care for them.
2: I've heard you're looked at as the leader of the shantytown. A lot of people seem to look up to you.
5: I spent my whole life caring for my brother. I was his eyes and his voice. That's not a habit you just give up. It's part of who I am. It's part of my soul.
2: As I speak to Elijah, I notice a derelict rummaging through a nearby mound of refuse. Dressed in rags, he mumbles to himself as his eyes frantically survey the trash pile.
5: Besides, with what's become of our town leaders, someone had to step up and take control. Can't leave everything in the hands of that miserable sheriff. Hey, Cyrus.
0: The vagrant
2: looks up his face familiar to many in this town, though now thinner and worn. He is Claude's co-conspirator, though he has surely seen better days. Mr.
5: Cyrus, you looking for anything in particular, anything I can help you with. It's gone. What's gone?
0: The gaze, the, the happy. It's all gone.
5: Now, sigh. how about you go back into the shanty town and rest up? I'll make sure Shaman John pays you a visit.
2: I want to talk to Cyrus, but he speaks nothing but gibberish. I see the futility in attempting an interview, so I let him shuffle off toward the rows of shacks that dot the horizon.
5: See, this is why they need me. There's no inspiration to be found in a man who has been reduced to a husk. Thank goodness I don't have to work alone. Got me that Shaman John fella helping out. Always thought he was a strange bird, but he gives the people hope. And for many, that's all we need.
2: that bind it's been three weeks since I first arrived in town and I've been able to talk to almost everyone connected to the fire doing my best to hide from both the city clerk and the sheriff but just like with the barber all these interviews have done is color in the effects of the fire and I need to know the cause who or what lit the first flame My list of suspects was down to three. First, the reporter himself. Suicide seemed unlikely, but love and loss had prompted many a person into unthinkable acts. Second, the sheriff. A long shot for sure, but the encounter with the Cheyenne man proved the sheriff had the potential for violence. Finally, the ex-companion, the town doctor, the one person who refused to speak with me. He was not a social man to begin with, but after the fire his social outings went from little to none. The only time he spent outdoors was the short walk to and from his office. I used these brief windows of time as best I could, walking beside him while posing question after question. I even once tried to bar his way, standing stern in front of his path, but no response ever came. So it was quite the shock when the doctor's current companion, the school teacher, walked straight up to me. May I have your hand? I immediately complied. She closed her eyes, her breathing became shallow, and her grip grew tighter. After a minute, she looked up into my eyes with relief and said the absolute last thing I could have expected.
4: We'd like you to come over
2: tonight. After dark. And with that, she dropped my hand, turned around, and walked away. That night, Angie was waiting for me, standing outside by the back door. Her tender smile undermined the excitement of this clandestine meeting. And her warm greeting, a simple, thank you for coming, changed the ambience from cloak and dagger to afternoon tea. She led me through the small house, first through the kitchen, then a narrow hallway, and we arrived in the living room. A nervous woman was sitting on a simple couch, her eyes heavily focused on a glass of whiskey. Angie offered no introduction, nor did the woman speak. I, I thought I was coming here to speak with the doctor. You are. The voice came from the woman on the couch. She raised her head and several realizations hit at once. The woman was wearing the doctor's pants and the doctor's shirt. The doctor's old frayed hat and coat were perched just behind on a coat tree. The doctor's eyes looked at me past a frame of long blonde hair, which turned at odd angles from spending most of the day concealed beneath a hat in a tight bun. This woman was the doctor, and the doctor was her. There was no shock to this discovery— I had no time to consider its meaning. I had come to get answers about Carl's death. So I pressed on to the goal. Why tonight, after all the silence? Angie. She
7: told me I had to speak with you.
2: Angie had moved to the couch and placed herself next to her lover, offering both encouragement and sympathy. And why
7: didn't you talk to me before? Because this could only bring me more pain. Two
2: or three questions followed after which she took over and told her entire story, from childhood to the fire, how she was raised to be a prized bride, but yearned for a life of meaning, how her physical deception, first used to get into medical school, had become as much a part of her identity as her thirst for knowledge, how Pleasure Town had become her home. And finally, we arrived at The Reporter, It was his tenacity that won her over, the unending pursuit for every possible angle. She had never been pursued by a man before. And even though the pursuit was professional rather than romantic, it still had the same effect. So, she gave in. Invited him over. Shared her secret.
7: I still love him. As much as I could ever love him. But he either wasn't or... Stopped being the love I needed. And what happened at the end? He couldn't come to terms with my choice, choosing Angie over him. And his anger ate away at his rationality. Threats and pleas and other desperate acts were all we shared at the end.
2: The room was silent. It seemed as if she had reached the end of her story. So... I posed the only remaining question.
7: Did you kill him? No. I believe he'd still be alive today if I hadn't, if we hadn't. A thousand choices, if slightly altered, he'd still be here. But no, I didn't light the match.
2: A moment followed. The doctor looked to Angie, And Angie returned her gaze. I could feel a question pass between them, a silent plea and response, one asking for permission and the other holding to a predetermined plan. Angie stood and began to clear the table, and the doctor turned back to me.
7: My secret is mine, and I have grown into it. It and I are inseparable. You're a part of that now, but you have to know I can't live if it gets out. Angie told me I can trust you. Do not prove her wrong. Angie returned, shared a few pleasantries, and
2: showed me to the door. Later in life, I would develop a trust in my intuition, the indescribable sense of truth and deception. But all I had that night was a confusing desire to trust the doctor's words at least up until the final question. It seemed that she had been mostly forthcoming. But I had not left with the whole story. Pieces of this puzzle remained missing. And those pieces were waiting for me back in my room. On the small table that the owner passed off for a desk lay a small stack of letters. It didn't take me long to discern they were the doctor's love letters to Angie. They started with the thrill of a secret passion, but each letter darkened in tone, shifting from the promise of future meetings to the fear of Carl's actions. I read the last paragraph of the last letter just as I had once read Carl's articles, poring over every word, letting their meaning solidify in my mind. Now that he knows, his anger has tripled. I dare not confirm that it is you that holds my
7: heart. It is you that holds my heart. As I, he as I fear what he will do to keep me as his, he's already threatened to make my secret public, to tell the world of my true self. My only hope is that his love for me, a love I have to trust is still there, will prevent him from this desperate and selfish act. I cling to this hope. I cling to this hope. Without, Without
2: it? it I know not what I would do to quiet his betrayal. Eternity at the foot of your idol is exactly what you'd expect. The veil is lifted, the pedestal falls, and the hero begins to bleed. Carl was far from perfect in life, and that has become clear to me in death.
3: Your final act could use some work. (laughs) What do you mean? You didn't tell them who killed me.
2: Well, at that point, I didn't know. More importantly, I don't think knowing who killed you resolves the story. How do you mean? It's the why, which was staring me in the face. The whole time I was in Pleasure Town, it was there.
1: You done yet? I believe I am.
0: Well, I, for one, think you told this story better than we ever could. Thank you, Cyrus.
1: And I, for one, think you two should get a room. Hey, everyone, this is Keith. And this is Aaron. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pleasure Town. Hope you enjoyed it.
8: Absolutely. Uh, It's been a, a labor of love, and we... We really hope you enjoyed what we have to offer.
1: If you did like what you heard, we would love it if you visited us on iTunes and gave us some stars and a review. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Pleasure Town and also on Twitter at Pleasure Town OK. And
3: of
8: course, we have our website, PleasureTownShow.com. There you can check out more about the show, read about the town's history, and we have a lot of ways for you to get involved. Just click Join the Story. We have the episode contest that's going up till December. First, we have Founders' Last Names, which will be announced in the very last episode of Season 1 of Pleasure Town. And, of course, if you're listening past this time, if you're listening sometime in 2015, 16, 17, uh, there's always ways for you to join the story. I guarantee you we're still around. And send us a message from the future so we can play the stock market.
1: Exactly. So, indefinitely, we are accepting new submissions indefinitely for all kinds of content for the show.
8: Yeah, you can submit absolutely anything from an episode to an image to just a a virtual high five. There are a lot of ways to get involved.
1: Also, we have a a very special treat for you all who are listening. A week after this episode drops, the week of November 17th, you can check out our website, as Aaron mentioned, pleasuretownshow.com, and we'll have a video posted. And it's a very special video uh, that... I don't want to go into it too much just you'll just see what it is it's uh, it's going to be a special treat for you all
8: if you enjoy Pleasure Town you're going to love the video go check it out thank you thank you thank you see you in two weeks or in five minutes if you're listening to this episode much much later
1: thank you so much
9: this episode of Pleasure Town was written by Aaron Cahoe and Keith Ecker and performed by Elna Baker Kevin Gladish Paul Whitehouse Tyler Green Don Hall Josh Segorin Julian Stroop Jillian Ray and Dana Norris Direction and sound assistance by Iris Lynn and Patrick Burns and a very special thank you to Seth Lind Elna Baker and Emily Condon at This American Life Our interns are me, Emily Modaf and Allison Agumakun Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen and engineered by Colin Ashmead-Bobbitt As always, direction and sound design was by Joe Dessau, who, when asked about being excluded from dinner plans by Keith and Aaron, said,
6: It just ain't right. A man and another man enjoying a meal, a glass of wine, companionship.
9: Pleasure Town is a part of the WBEZ Podcast Network. Discover more excellent shows at wbez.org slash podcasts.